Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius, because there will be a world without us. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. <laughs> or as I prefer to think of it, Audrey Hepburn, Dear John and Hank, Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> Damn it, I missed the joke. We got to redo the intro. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, uh, God, I did it again. Damn it, Catherine, I'm ready. Do it. <laughs> I did not. Anyway, it's a comedy podcast in which me and my brother John answer your questions, bring you dubious advice, and uh, bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. And also, uh, we talk about how we're doing and read you a short poem and tell you about our sponsors. And what, 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 what how are you doing, John? I'm doing well. I have a bit of a cold. So I'm coming to you today with my husky voice. Oh, okay. I'm coming to you today with my half Sprite, half soda water from Subway. Ooh. Sponsor. <laughs> oh, man. What I wouldn't give to get some of that sweet, sweet half Sprite, half soda water money. Um, <laughs> it, I call it Splite. Oh, God. Because it's so light, because it only has like 70 yeah. calories per 12 it's, ounces. Yeah, it's 50, 50% of the calories. Oh my goodness. Uh, I can't drink. I cannot drink straight Sprite anymore. It is so sweet that I have to do this now in order to like even... it. It To me, I've gotten to the point where un, uh, uh, not watered down fruit juices or sodas to me taste like just ground up Jolly Rancher like <laughs> piped straight into my mouth. I have to say, uh, I have also lost my taste for full calorie soda. I fear that this is part of middle age uh, encroaching. Um, <laughs> I remember being a kid and seeing all of the grown-ups drinking Diet Coke and thinking that there was nothing on the earth sadder than these grown-ups drinking Diet Coke. And here I am. <laughs> Yeah, our mom had uh, would have uh, just just bubble water, just like flavored, but not sweetened uh, soda water. Yeah, and I I remember one time grabbing one of those and be like, "Well, mom likes these," and having one and just thinking, just how disgusting. Yeah, that was. Yeah, me too. And now I drink it all the time. I drink it all the time. The La Croix. 
about the Lacroix, John. Hank, as I speak to you, I am drinking a grapefruit Lacroix, and it is phenomenal. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what was wrong with my teenage taste buds that they couldn't appreciate the subtle grapefruit notes in this Lacroix. <laughs> so many. Can I read you a short poem? Yeah. Hank? Okay. Do that. <laughs> Uh, Hank, in, in honor, uh, last week we talked about David Bowie's death. It's now been like six weeks since David Bowie died, but I've I've just now gotten the poem together. Uh, this is actually the lyrics from uh, David Bowie's song, uh, Eight Line Poem, I thought I'd read today uh, in honor of uh, the great David Bowie. The tactful cactus by your window surveys the prairie of your room. The mobile spins to its collision. Clara puts her head between her paws. They've opened shops down the west side. Will all the cacti find a home? But the key to the city is in the sun that pins the branches to the sky. Eight-line poem by David Bowie. It's like David Bowie knew that we were going to need a short poem for today. And so he was like, well, you know, it's the 70s. I'll, uh, in, in about 45 years, somebody's going to need an eight-line poem. Uh, and, uh, and so I'll write you one. Boom. Well, we appreciate it, David Bowie, and, and all of your other gifts to, uh, to our broken, uh, and only humanity as well. Hank, should we answer some questions from listeners? Uh, first, we've got some general feedback, uh, about oh the podcast that I want to, that I want to check, uh, and I want to apologize in advance for all the times I was wrong about science. Uh, this one is from Hamish, who says, love the pro- podcast. Bright spot in my week. There's a herd of feral cows on Haida Gwaii off the coast of British Columbia. I nearly drove into one on a dark night. Big shaggy thing. Keep it up. So there are mm. feral cows out there, John, um, and in British Columbia. It does not surprise me if they were going to be anywhere. They would be in BC. Yeah. Uh, if I were going to be a feral cow or a human being and I could choose any place to live on Earth, it would probably be British Columbia. Oh, really? Well, unfortunately, you yeah, can't. Yeah, probably, just because of the... Uh, it's relatively mild climate. Um, <laughs> and... Relative uh, to... And it's in Canada. Yeah. Relative to the rest of Canada. Mm. Um, what I'm trying to do is find a way to live in Canada, but also live in Hawaii. Ideally, Canada would invade Hawaii. But short of that, I think I'm going to have to live in British Columbia. All right. Well, I th- I I think it would be great if Canada just annexed Hawaii, uh, and then and that was and then all the people could have the Canadian laws and the Hawaiian weather. That mm. would be that would be the best of 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 all things. Um, you know what Canada doesn't have, Hank? What? Pennies. Really? They, they got pennies. rid of their penny. They did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I heard about yeah, that. Yeah. No, because. They were like, you know what we should do? Uh, we should be rational economic actors in the world and get rid of pennies. Yep. Whereas the United States government is, eh, let's keep spending two cents on these suckers that nobody uses to facilitate the exchange of goods. Here is the, the I recently heard an argument for the existence of pennies that I agreed with. Oh, shut up. Do, you, do you, I know, I know. I, I was shocked as well. Do you want to hear it? Hold on, I gotta have a sip of my grapefruit laqua to get ready for this crap. Okay, well, I, I think that you will you <sighs> will refreshing. agree to some extent that it is not a terrible reason for pennies to exist. Um, okay, bring it. In a lot of nations that are not America, yeah, they nonetheless use American currency. 
Correct. And in those places, uh, the difference between uh, one cent and five cents is a big difference. For example, a bus fare might be seven cents. And going down to five cents would be economically, uh, you know, would not work for the, the people running the bus line. And going up to 10 would be a huge hit to the people who take that bus. And, uh, and so uh, like a one cent increase in bus fares, for example, often increases in, uh, often uh, results in protests and like, like significant problems. Um, economic, okay. Uh, for the couple things. So I just got to cut you off okay. because you're so wrong. All right. Uh, Okay, so in this hypothetical this is a real uh, thing world, I assume we're talking about like maybe Venezuela in 1972. No, so but I I, I heard this no I heard place. this from a congressional staffer. There is no place on Earth right now where U.S. currency is used for bus fares that are uh, part of a the public service of a country other than the United States because nowhere on earth other than the United States is the US dollar an official currency. So putting the bus example aside, there are places where uh, goods are somewhat less expensive uh, than they are in the United States or where less expensive goods are frequently uh, traded or less expensive services are frequently traded in exchange for currency. In none of these places, none of them, is anything worth a penny because pennies are less than worthless. But if that were true, and if someone can show me an actual example of that being true, I will slightly revise my opinion on pennies uh, to that we should no longer uh, mint them except insofar as there is demand for them and we should begin rounding immediately all of our transactions in the United States to the nearest dime. Um, so we got another question. This, this is from Allison. It's not a question, just another comment. Yeah. Uh, you both, especially John, like discussing how many things will uh, will lead to widespread death. I really enjoy listening to your comedy podcast, yet I find myself wondering if there is really anything in the world that will not lead to widespread death. Yeah, Purell. Yeah, I guess I guess Purell will not lead to widespread death, um, but uh, nothing does lead to widespread death. Like the the there will inevitably be uh, widespread death, but the the question is, will there also be widespread birth? Right. Uh, to that that's that's sort of like will the widespread death be uh, be spread out over a, a, a relatively long you know a normal sort of or will there be spikes spikes is the thing you want to avoid a, a nice level death rate absolutely fine and wonderful and uh, and that's that's of course what we're going for what we want is for the same number of people to die pretty much every year well ideally we'd like that number to go down and in fact, I was sort of shocked to find that it does go down because it seems like, oh, no, uh, you know, people die. And so the number of people who get born and the number of people who die. And it's just like if like, it should be the same over time. But it's really not. The number of people who die per year has decreased substantially. Yeah. Oh, no, it's it's, it's, uh, fascinating. it's become it's so much better to be alive today than it was like 1500 years ago. It's almost, it's difficult to even calculate it, but yeah, the global, the essentially the global death rate has dropped dramatically. Like it's dropped by almost 
half. Right. The, but the thing is, like, you wouldn't necessarily think that because the rate has decreased, that the number has decreased. Because it, it seems sort of like, well, the number of people who die is equal to the number of people who are alive well, in the long well, term. Well, the birth rate, but to be as fair, they live, as has they, also dropped a lot. Yes. Yeah. But as, they, as people live longer, fewer people die per year because you have more years in which you can die. Right. So... Uh, it, it it sort of is counterintuitive, and it took me a little while to get my mind around the fact that actually fewer people die per year, which is neat. Uh, so yes, we want the number of people who di- who die per year to go down slowly or as, as quickly as possible, and no spikes. So when we talk about uh, widespread death, what we're talking about is spikes in the death, uh, which we really do not want those. That is what we are trying to avoid. And the last comment we have from a listener, this is from Lauren, who just wants us to know that uh, the Insight Lander, which we talked about being delayed substantially a few weeks ago, uh, her father is the lead propulsion person at Lockheed on that mission, which is super cool. Isn't that... I, I don't know. I just like that the world is small and that people are doing cool things, John. Um, and and lo- Well, I, I wish her father great luck getting that thing to Mars. <laughs> All right, John. Uh, let's do some actual questions. Go. All right, Hank, we've got a question here from Andy who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm working on a production of The Wizard of Oz, and every day after giving the Tin Man his heart, the wizard says, Remember, my sentimental friend, a heart is not judged by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. This rings false to me. I would love to know if you agree or disagree with the wizard and why. Thanks for your question, Andy. Um, Yeah, so one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that things that sound like aphorisms often become sort of used in common language as if they were true, even though when you really look at them, they aren't. The The best example of this to me is from uh, the book Love Story, which was turned into this big hit movie. Uh, it was this, you know, tragic uh, story. It, really, The Fault in Our Stars, in some ways, I, I like built as sort of a response to love story or, or trying to like uh, address some of the things that I saw as romanticized in it. Um, but it was this huge hit book in the 70s. And the famous line from it that was in uh, common discourse for decades afterwards was love means never having to say you're sorry. Which, of course, is ridiculous. Uh, anyone who's ever been in love knows that it means constantly having to say that you're sorry. Uh, and that if you don't ever say that, that you're sorry, it's what a meanie you're being to this person you love. I do think that there's something about uh, the wizard's line here that I find troubling. Um, because loving is, is, is important just as being loved is important. And I don't think that you can really fully separate them. Yeah, I uh, I don't think that... Uh, we should take what is written in, especially said by characters and books as definite truth. I mean, obviously the wizard is supposed to be this big wise man. That's probably where the wiz- word wizard comes from now that I think about it, from wise ard. He's a wise ard. And, uh, but yeah, I I think that the way that you think about love it should be the way that you think about love. Yeah, I just, I don't buy the idea that... Uh a heart should be judged either way by how much it loves or by how much it is loved. Like, who's who's doing the judging? The wizard? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm troubled. I'm troubled by that line, even though there's a lot that I like about The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I got another question from Brandon who asks, Dear Hank and John, so you know how California has a water shortage? 
why can't they just hold a big magnifying glass over the sea to create water vapor and then collect that salt-free water vapor and then condense it into usable water? Love the show. Um, well, I do know that, uh, that in science fiction, I have seen this idea. Um, it was not used to, in, in the book I'm thinking of, it was not used to create water vapor. It was used to create a number of other gases um, and also to build a canal. Uh, so basically burning a, a ditch in the earth uh, and, uh, and, and connecting two bodies of water. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you would have to have a way of lifting that giant magnifying glass into the air, which would be extremely energy intensive and keeping it there. Uh, the the one potential thing you could do is actually put that in orbit or build it in orbit so that it is either a, a mirror or a uh, or a magnifying glass that is focusing the sun's energy on the water. Now, you are also going to have a ton of ecological consequences here. So like as you are boiling this water, you are also heating up the water, which means that you're changing the local uh, the local like temperature of the sea dramatically which is going to really affect the 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 aquatic life there it's going to mess up that um and uh and then you have to collect this this uh this water uh which you probably wouldn't do you would probably just have it rise up and only do it on days when the wind was blowing the direction you wanted it to blow and then it would fall on the land which is great because you know then you you don't have to create any new infrastructure you just recharge the aquifers and the water falls on the crops and it's all good um so yeah it is not it is not something that would not work it is probably more energy intensive though than just uh, creating a desalination plant uh which is extremely energy intensive which is why they haven't done that yet but they might and in the long term have to do that in desalination or desalinization i think those words mean the same thing uh, it's probably in the long-term future for California, which is kind of scary. Well, I think that everyone should just move right here to Indianapolis, where we have tons of water. We we just we almost have too much of it. <laughs> it's probably probably difficult to move all the all the you know fruit trees that have been growing there for the last two hundred years. But no, they do great here. Are you kidding? We can grow a tangerine like nobody's business here in Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> it's four degrees outside right now. Does that affect things at all? <laughs> all right, Hank, we've got another question. Uh, this one is from Catherine, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently saw the movie Inside Out, and it made me think about a quote from The Fault in Our Stars. This is a very controversial quote from my novel, The Fault in Our Stars, by the way, Hank. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the existence mm-hmm. of broccoli does not in any way affect the taste of chocolate. Inside Out seems to argue the exact opposite, that without sadness, we can't truly feel joy. I was wondering what you two thought of Inside Out and its overall message, especially with this quote in mind. What would our lives be like if we had never suffered? Is suffering necessary for us to see the beauty in life? Yeah, I feel like, John, you've thought about this way more than me. So, like, I I, I cannot really wrap my mind around this because I don't know what life would be like if I hadn't lived the way that I have. Well, of course, I also don't. And I don't know if uh, if joy is sweeter for having suffered or or if the more you suffer, the sweeter joy becomes. What I do know is that a lot of times uh, people use that idea um, as a way of telling people who are suffering what to feel or as a way of telling people who are suffering what the meaning of their suffering is. And that strikes me as 
uh, dehumanizing and infuriating. And I think that's what Hazel was responding to um, in the novel when she said that. But she does say the existence of broccoli doesn't affect, uh, affect the taste of chocolate, not the taste of broccoli doesn't affect the taste of chocolate. Because, of course, the taste of uh, broccoli does I mean, literally affect the taste of chocolate. Like if you eat it immediately before, or immediately after, like it does, it does affect the way that your taste buds respond to chocolate. If you had broccoli flavored chocolate or like chocolate with broccoli bits in it, then, then the broccoli kind of would definitely, actually. definitely affect the flavor of the chocolate. Myself, I like both broccoli and chocolate. So I, I don't have a problem with this uh, false dichotomy that Hazel has created in, in my book. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I can't speak to what life would be like without sadness. Um, I, I do not, however, buy into this argument that um, th- that we suffer so that we can learn lessons or that we suffer so that we can um, become, you know, better, more grateful, more joyful people. I think there are cheaper ways to learn these lessons than mm-hmm. the kind of suffering that many people um, live with. And I and I. And, and if that's if I'm wrong about that, if some people find uh, comfort or feel that feel that their lives, you know, become richer uh, through suffering, then maybe maybe I'm wrong. But I don't what I don't want to do is impose uh, this worldview upon others when they are going through hard times that they may or may not find transformative or useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there a lot of it isn't about joy or suffering it's about the feeling of of like a, what a good life is um and and i I'm, I'm sort of playing with this idea very you know uh cursorily here i don't i don't have a lot of i haven't really developed this line of reasoning but um that it's more about uh what is seen as a good life and and th- there is a lot about how we live our lives that isn't really about uh, bringing bringing joy into our lives. It's about how to feel as if we are having a good one. And uh, you know, obviously now we have a great deal more luxury just by virtue of like hot water coming out of our houses and the internet and being able to choose from a number of different cuisines every night um, that we did not previously have uh, as as like Americans and also as humans. Um, and, and so like, it, it's nice, like, because those things are like, like hot water is a great example. That is something that most people in America have, um, and most people in America take for granted. And like, what a lovely thing to be able to take a hot shower on a cold day. Uh, and it, and every time I do that, I try to think how lovely it is, despite the fact that I've always had that luxury. Um, I, I try to remember what a great luxury it is. And that most people who have ever existed have not had that luxury. Um, yeah, and I see your point that you probably can't appreciate that in the way that someone who is taking their first hot shower would appreciate it. I yeah. guess for me, um, you know, my thinking when I was writing that was how often we we hear these these narratives because of because of the way we construct what constitutes a good life we often hear these narratives of well i went through this and i came out on the other side stronger healthier happier more joyful more grateful whatever um, but what if there is no other side? You know, for Hazel, there really is no other side. There is there is not going to be a time in her life when she is what other people uh, would call healthy. 
You know, there is not going to be a time in her life when she's, you know, completely able-bodied. She's not getting better. Um, you know, she's just living in this sort of stasis where, you know, she's able to treat um, her cancer, but she's not able to cure it. And um, and I think saying to those, say, you know, imagining what, what constitutes a good life um, and excluding someone like Hazel is right. is really troubling mm -hmm. to me. And that's that's where the idea came from. I certainly don't want to argue that, um, you know, uh, everyone has equal access to the same kinds of joy at all times or anything like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I myself have mixed feelings about the quote, but what can I do? The book came out. <laughs> well said, John. Um, uh, well said. I, th I think that, that that means a lot to me as a, a person who likes your books a lot. Um, and that is a very separate thing, of course, than the question. But I uh, really do appreciate how how uh, intense and weird it is to have, after four years later, um, have have a book that, you know, a lot of people love and uh, and to and to not you know, of course, not feel, feel like it is in any in any way uh, perfect or, um, you know, something that you something. It's still something that you have mixed feelings about. And, and like, you know, obviously, I think that you I like that book a lot. I've read it a lot like, several times since it came out. And uh, I uh, it's it's so interesting to, you know, that you are my brother and so I see you as my brother and not uh, like uh, the, the the sort of way I feel about my favorite authors is very different from the way that I feel about my brother um, and uh, and and yet you are also one of my favorite authors uh, so it is it's always really interesting to hear you talk about the complexities of your relationship with your work thank you I mean it's definitely uh, a difficult thing to have something out in the world for years and years after you were last able to uh, touch it and change it. And of course, you know, I've <laughs> I've changed and learned since then. Um, but you never know if that makes you a, a better writer or a worse one. I, I, I always think about W.H. Auden, mm -hmm. um, you know, later in his life, going back and revising all of his poems. Um, and, and he felt so strongly that he was making them better and he was making them so, so much worse. Uh, there's, you know, the, probably the greatest, most quoted line of W.H. Auden's poetry is we must love one another or die. Um, and he later uh, edited that to we must love one another and die, which is more true, but less good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really yeah, different well, it's message. Like, it's like he forgot deeply, deeply what different. he meant in the intervening years. Um <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of examples like that where you just you read the edited versions of the poem and you're just like, oh, my goodness, how did you convince yourself that this was a step in the right direction? So my feeling is just that, you know, my the, the, all of my books, uh, you know, even the day after they come out, I have to say to myself, like, this is something that I did in a period of my life that reflected my very best attempt to to, you know, write the best story I could. And that's that's all it is, you know, like it's a snapshot of that, of that time mm -hmm. of that, mm -hmm. of the creative output that I was capable of in that moment and, um, or in those years or whatever. And that's all, all it can be. Uh, and you have to let go of it and you have to, you have to let it have a life that's separate from yours. I mean, one of the weird things about having the fault in our stars come out and reach such a broad audience is that lots of people have interpreted it in ways that, uh, I am frankly uncomfortable with, you know, uh, 
books belong to their readers, but there there is still an author out there thinking, no, 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 that's not what I meant at all. <laughs> um, yeah. And you just yeah. have to live with that, you know. Like if 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 you if you hear from someone that uh, the Fault in Our Stars taught them to be grateful for every day, even though Hazel makes fun of that mm-hmm. uh, within the very text of the novel, like you just have to let it go. Yeah. Uh, he said clearly not letting it go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's another question, John. It's from Adam, who says, "Dear Hank and John." Uh, you recently, you spent a lot of time talking about your apocalypse fears. As a geoscientist, I was distraught to learn that some of the most exciting and potentially devastating geologic catastrophes didn't make the list. John, have you considered how far from the Yellowstone supervolcano you live? Hank, do you, uh, how ready do you think humanity is to deflect a large asteroid if one were discovered to be about to strike us? The, these, along with sudden rapid climate change, are my top three apocalypses, the ones that tend to keep keep me up at night. Uh, th- those are all uh, potential apocalypses that I am aware of. The Yellowstone supervolcano does not bug me that much, uh, despite the fact that I live very close to Wait, it. Wait, what is the Yellowstone supervolcano? How is it going to kill all of us? And when is it going to erupt? So uh, Yellowstone National... Have you ever been to Yellowstone, John? Yep. Uh, so Yellowstone National Park but is... But I'm never going back. One of the most... I, frankly, if... If the Yellowstone supervolcano were to erupt, I think Yellowstone National Park would be the best place to be because you want to die fast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good Lord. Okay. Um, Great. (laughs) It depends on which way the wind's blowing, literally. Uh, But uh, Yellowstone National Park is one of the most beautiful places on Earth. It is uh, a really a, f- a fairly untouched wilderness, but one that has a road running straight through the middle of it, so that you can go see some of the more spectacular parts of it. And those spectacular parts are generally uh, driven by geothermal activity. Um, the park itself is mostly inside of a caldera of a volcano that uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but it was a very long time ago that erupted and. Um, I cast ash over the majority of North America. All right. Um, it is it has erupted many times, uh, and and we are aware of, uh, you know, we can sort of see in the geological record uh, four or five of those, and um, it is it is a it is the big I th- it is at least one of the biggest volcanoes on Earth. It is. When you are inside of the Yellowstone caldera, you do not feel like you are inside of a caldera because it is so large. You, you basically just feel like there's some mountains around, but really you are in a crater that that was formed when uh, a huge, um, like basically, you know, the, the, an area like I would not be surprised if you could fit... Uh, Rhode Island inside of it, though I'm sure you can't. Uh, a very large area was just ejected into the atmosphere, and um, that where what then happens is a, a long period of time that does not have uh, normal amounts of sunlight, which changes the weather very dramatically, and it it potentially would result in um, an inability to grow food, and that would be the thing that would kill. A lot of people in America. Um, it would probably have a, a really significant global impact as well, but uh, people, there would be a lot of people in America who would just immediately die um, just by being bar- buried in ash. This is not likely, though. This is not something that happens every five years. No, this, this, uh, it, it's, 
you know, people will say like we're due for one, um, but what that means is that they occur within a certain number of years from each other, and that we're, we're sort of roughly around, like we're inside of the the time in which this could happen again. But if it were going to happen again, there would be a number of tremendous uh, geological changes that we would be seeing. Uh, the the this uh, these eruptions happen after a lot of pressure starts building up underneath the. Uh, you know the caldera yeah and what you would see is is literally the ground would be rising at the rate of feet or meters per day oh god um so that we're nowhere near that though there there had there is a you know there is like flex in the the ground in yellowstone that it will rise and fall by feet and, and meters per year uh, which is really remarkable, and and they you know they've only been doing research on this stuff for the last fifty years or so, but um, we are not seeing anywhere like the kind of geological activity that would result in the Yellowstone supervolcano erupting. Um, but and and so basically, my my guess is that we are thousands of years away from the super from from that volcano erupting. All right. Um, and so it does not concern me. What about the asteroids? Asteroids are more of a crapshoot, uh, which is why I don't concern myself with them, uh, because you can't really know. And what we're doing right now to try and get a better get a better handle on the you know the near Earth objects is, uh, I think, appropriate. Uh, and if if we identified a near-Earth object that was going to strike Earth that was large enough to be concerned with, I would actually kind of like to see humanity band together and take care of that because I feel like it's something that we could take care of. Um, and and I, would le- I would like to see us do it. Don't you also think, though, that we might, uh, we might have a lot of debates about whether the asteroid is really going to hit Earth or whether the science might be wrong about this? And how this is going to be a future generation's problem, not our problem. No, I think I think that NASA, probably NASA, would find it first. They would ask other observatories with on the order of days to weeks to confirm, and then it would be confirmed. I don't think that it would be. It's not. It's it's pretty easy to figure that stuff out. So you're saying there would be widespread scientific agreement that this asteroid yeah. was about to hit Earth. My, my counter argument to that would be. Uh, clim- climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that asteroids are much scarier than climate change, despite the fact that climate change is actually a much more significant threat. And I do agree with Adam. I was going to say <laughs> I'm 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 much more worried about climate yeah. change than I'm worried about yeah. asteroids, and that's saying something because I can worry. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I think we spent a lot of time on Adam's Adam's question, but uh, you know, it's dear Hank and John, so we can't not spend time talking about the apocalypse. Uh, speaking of which, Hank, did you know that today's podcast is actually brought to you by sudden rapid climate change? Sudden rapid climate oh. change, a thing that many people think is impossible. Just not scientists. This podcast is also brought to you by broccoli-flavored chocolate, uh, something about which John feels ambivalent because, in fact, broccoli in this case does affect the flavor of chocolate. And, of course, this podcast is also brought to you by California's water shortage. California's water (laughs) shortage. Don't worry. We'll put a huge magnifying glass in space. (laughs) All taken care of. This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by ZocDoc. Look. There are, I think it's fair to say, some imperfections in the American healthcare system, but there are ways that it actually has recently gotten easier. I don't compromise on a lot of things, but I do not love feeling like I can't find the right 
doctor for me. And I've gotten very lucky that I have found some good doctors for me. When it comes to your health, there shouldn't be compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines slash their family group chat slash their crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or they happen to take your insurance. Instead, like you don't have to keep going back to a doctor who you don't like. You can check out ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable, who listen to you, who prioritize your health, and you can search by location, availability, and insurance type. So literally, no compromises. Because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more phone calls and waiting on hold with a receptionist. We don't have time for this anymore. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even sometimes score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Every time I know it's coming, and I'm like, I'm going to have to say doc, ZocDoc.com right now, aren't I? And then I do. I'm getting good at it, everybody. ZocDoc.com. <laughs> I love it. We're going to do one last question, John. Does that sound okay to you? Sure. All right. This one is from Paula, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I just found out that the amazing Stephen Colbert is a fan of the mountain goats, that his favorite planet is Mars, and that he's basically the biggest Tolkien geek the world has ever seen. I think that's just one step away from becoming a lifelong nerdfighter. Is there any secret plan that has evolved about how to act in these kind of situations? What shall we do? Crash the late show with an <laughs> army of puppy-sized <laughs> elephants? Well, you know, Hank, I had the chance to meet Stephen Colbert um, not too long ago. And the coolest thing about it, I mean, I was generally very, very impressed with him. Um, He came in and talked to me a bunch about the show. He was like, I play a character. I'm not really that person. And I was like, I've seen the show, man. And he was like, oh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for your support. Um, I was just (laughs) like, do do people come here who haven't seen the show? Anyway, in between segments of the Colbert Report, his previous show, he played the exact same Neutral Milk Hotel song uh, every time. And uh, he, he, he told, I was like, I love this song and I love wow. this album. And he said, uh, yeah, I love it too. He said, every, uh, every taping, I try to find someone in the crowd who's singing along with it and lock eyes with them. And then we sing the words together. And I was like, <laughs> that is so cool, Stephen Colbert. That is oh my God. so like, I'm so glad that you told me that after our little bit together, because <laughs> I could not have handled meeting you if I knew it before. <laughs> Uh, this is a very unrelated story, but I was at a hockey game recently. The uh, the Missoula Missoula has a very small hockey team, um, and what's the what's the mascot? Uh, the mall the, the mascot is Slash, uh, who is a wolf. Mm. Uh, they are the Maulers. Uh, I'm I'm very ambivalent, or I'm just going to go ahead and say that I do not like that our our hockey team is called the Maulers and that the mascot is a wolf, because there is a lot of like sort of anti-wolf sentiment in uh, this part of the country, and I am not, I'm not a part of it. Uh, but anyway, I uh, I was at this this hockey game. And uh, and shut up and dance by Walk the Moon came on, uh, one of my fav- yeah. favorite songs of 2015, and yeah. uh, 
a girl is walking to her seat and she's singing along with just it, these dead, dead eyes. And Shut Up and Dance, very fun, you know, sort of summertime. <laughs> and she's just like singing, knows every word, but like she's somewhere else. She does not know that she's singing along. She's thinking about her algebra test and how she did very poorly on it. But she is mouthing those words to shut up and dance, no problem. And I was just like, I've never seen a more sad person singing along to Walk the Moon's Shut Up and Dance. Hank, do you know where Walk the Moon formed? Uh, Indianapolis, Indiana? Incorrect. They formed at my alma mater, Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio. Oh, interesting. There you wow, go. so many famous people coming out of Kenyon College. So many you? people. You? Those guys? Allison Janney. I don't know who that is. She's the press secretary on uh, on The West Wing. And also, she's been in a million movies. Oh, CJ Craig? Yeah. I know, she's great. I love her. She's great. Let's move on to the news from uh, Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Hank, do you want to go first, or do you want me to, or do you want to do rock, paper, scissors? Oh, uh, I want to do rock, paper, scissors, John. All right, ready? One, two, two three. three. Paper. I did paper, too. Okay. One, One, two, three, paper. Scissors. Oh! Did you wait to say scissors until after I'd said paper? No! No, it's just a little bit of a lag. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if that was lag, but okay, you go first. It's just a little bit of a lag. All right, uh, we got some news uh, from the federal government on December 18th, 2015. I know that's a little dated now, but uh, we're catching up still from the break. President Obama signed the spending bill, the budget, that funded the federal government through the fiscal year of 2016, which included... $19.3 $19.3 billion for NASA, an increase of $1.3 billion from last year. So uh, the a huge hunk of that is going toward uh, the line item that includes Orion and uh, the Space Launch System. And that is the, the new rocket that is going to be taking astronauts to the space station and beyond. And beyond includes possibly an asteroid mission, also includes possibly a Mars mission. Um, and that actually got uh, more money than they asked for, which is great because uh, that, is, that is sort of on the, uh, on the trajectory toward getting uh, big payload missions to Mars, bigger payload missions than we've been able to do before and that could potentially include uh, having humans involved in those missions. So thank you to the federal government for uh, continuing to fund NASA and humanity's reach into the next, uh, the next, our next foothold in the solar system that could hopefully be Mars. Woo! And congratulations to the United States Congress on passing its first budget in like seven years. It's just amazing work, guys. <laughs> so proud of you. People said you could never do it, yeah. that you'd only fund the, um, fund the federal government for a week at a time. Um, and you did that. You kicked the can down the road for like years and years, but then finally you did it. You signed a budget. Great work, guys. In AFC Wimbledon news, Hank, uh, AFC Wimbledon, uh, as I'm recording this, uh, still hasn't played a game uh, (laughs) since their astonishing, astonishing 4-1 victory over Cambridge United, which was good also for their goal difference. But Hank, uh, the under-18 team, which I talked about beating Newcastle uh, last week. Now, Hank, I'm sure you recall uh, what happened, uh, the reason AFC Wimbledon was formed in the first place, right? Yes, I know all about that story. Basically, that uh, there was a team, Wimbledon FC, 
that had a wonderful history going back to the 1800s, and then uh, it was stolen away from them uh, when the English Football Association, the governing body of English football, uh, declared that Wimbledon FC would be moved. Um, and do you remember where they were moved to? They were moved. I don't, John. I don't. Milton Keynes. Yeah, that's never going to stick. And so they became, they call themselves the MK Dons because they claim some semblance of history associated with Wimbledon, which is complete crap. And they need to stop saying that. But they're just a franchise, basically. They're not a real football club. Uh, However, um, they play as if they were a real football club. And in Milton Keynes, they have some support. And I don't begrudge people who supported, who began supporting them after the move. Um, Anyway, long story short, occasionally, AFC Wimbledon will play Milton Keynes, uh, the franchise. Uh, I once heard, by the way, Hank, uh, a radio commentary of a game between AFC Wimbledon and Milton Keynes in which at no point did either of the announcers say the word Milton, the word Keynes, or any of the player names. Um, <laughs> uh, they were referred to only as the franchise, and they would be like, and now the franchise's right winger has the ball, and now he has passed it to one of the franchise's forwards. Um <laughs> It was amazing. There is unfortunately still one uh, Milton Keynes player who was a Wimbledon player, and I have never heard a player booed that consistently over 90 minutes in my entire life. I felt bad for the kid. He was just signing the only professional contract that he had access to. It felt like he couldn't say no, but boy, hooey, has he lived to regret it. Anyway... (laughs) Okay. The under-18 team, every time AFC Wimbledon plays Milton Keynes in any capacity, whether it's the, you know, the seven-year-old girls team, the, the you know, the 13-year-old boys team, whatever it is, uh, it is a big game, right? Because this is the team that essentially forced AFC Wimbledon into existence by stealing away the club. Um, so it is a big game. Like, it's essentially a game, like, uh, for instance, when... Uh, Milton Keynes and AFC Wimbledon play, uh, the AFC Wimbledon supporters always sing to the Milton Keynes supporters, who were you, who were you, who were you when you were us? Um, uh, which which I think puts a nice period on, uh, on the situation. So when the under 18 team played Milton Keynes, it's a big, big game, even if it's just a youth game. And AFC Wimbledon won 2-1, uh, sending the franchise right where it belongs to uh, ignominity. Yeah. Ignominity. Yeah. Yeah. Who were you when you were us? It's just that that is the greatest chant I've ever heard in football, it's I good. think. Um, it's just so... Perfect. The other one they sing is stand up if you own uh, your club, because everybody who supports AFC Wimbledon is also an owner Mm -hmm, of the team. mm -hmm. I should add, by the way, Hank, that AFC Wimbledon, uh, not because I am uh, a a celebrity sponsor of the club or anything, AFC Wimbledon sent both of my children Christmas cards. Ah. My children are both members of the Junior Dons. Mm Um, they sent both of my, which costs like $25 a month. If you're under 18, you can be a, not, not $25 a month, $25 a year. If you're under 18, you can be a junior Don for $25 a year. Um, if you're over 18, you can own part of the club for only like $80 a year. And you get to be an owner of the team and support this great institution. Anyway, they sent 
Henry and Alice, both cards signed by a bunch of the players, including Adebayo Akinfenwa, mm. Henry's favorite player. It was so cool of them. They do that every year. They send Henry and Alice birthday cards and Christmas cards every year signed by the players. It's so sweet. It's so awesome. I think it says a lot about the kind of club that they are. Um, yeah, so I wanted to say thank you for that as well. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you to AFC Wimbledon for being pretty cool. Uh, I think cooler than most football clubs, though that does not necessarily manage to hold my interest. <laughs> They're a lot cooler uh, than most football clubs. Uh, <laughs> and don't worry, all the talk about Mars bores me as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, thanks uh, for podcasting, John. What did we learn today? Well, we learned that there are feral cows on an island off of British Columbia living my dream. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. We learned that uh, John Green has complicated relationship with the things that he's created and has to just let them go, which he cannot do. And of course, we learned a new reason to fear the end of the world. A gigantic Yellowstone volcano and or comet coming from space and or rapid climate change. And, of course, we learned that the things that Hank and John are scared about are not people dying. We are in favor of people dying uh, at the same or lower rate than they currently are. But what we want to be afraid of are the spikes. Avoid the spikes. We hate the spikes. We are strongly opposed to spikes. And we learned, of course, that the Wizard of Oz is a truly wise ard. <laughs> I wonder if that's the actual uh, etymology of that word. I would be interested to find out. And in fact, I'm going to find out while you do the outro here. Well, I already, I already looked it up. It is from wise ard. Literally. <laughs> well, I don't know what correct. an ard is, but I'm clicking on ard. Uh, uh, oh, it, it forms a noun. It's like saying a, a, a wisey guy, like a wise guy. Or you a just, drunkard. Uh, a drunkard. Right, a drunkard. Yeah. Drunkard. Yeah. Wizard. All right. Ah! 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 Neat! Thanks for making a podcast with me, John, and uh, confirming that my etymology is correct, you wise ard. Uh, that, that word, by the way, ard, really reached its, uh, its pinnacle back in about <laughs> 1730. And it's been uh, steadily declining in significance <laughs> since. But we still have Wizard and Drunkard. That's something. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Dear Hank and John. You can uh, email us at hankandjohn at gmail.com with your questions. You can also use the hashtag Dear Hank and John on uh, the Twitter, where I'm John Green. Hank is Hank Green. Uh, this podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Our theme music is by Gunnarola. And as we say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be awesome. awesome.